in the Gospel of John. Because if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we're, at, we're actually in the middle of a long series through this Gospel. It's called the Gospel because it contains good news. It's a Greek word for, for good news. And it's one of the books that gives us stories about Jesus and his life and that records sections of his teaching. One of the best places to go to, actually, if you want to know what Jesus was about, if you want to evaluate whether you can trust him, then one of the best places to go is John's Gospel. That's where we are for all of this year. So I figured it'd be a good place for us to spend Easter together. The other reason John's a great place for us to spend Easter together is that John, as a gospel, is all about life. And that's what Easter's about. Now, most folks who have even heard of Jesus, if, wherever you are this morning, however familiar you are with him, chances are if you've heard of Jesus, what you know about him is that he died. It's one of the most famous facts about him. I mean, it's, it's, we're reminded of it just in the image of the cross, which has come into popular culture all over the world and, and reminds us that, that, that he died. Now, you might not understand much about what his death was about, but chances are you know he died. And, and this is where you might get tripped up in your understanding of Jesus and in your, your evaluation of why you should believe in him, why you can trust in him. Because Jesus is one of many religious leaders who's died. I mean, dying is not unique, right? Especially not for charismatic leaders who galvanize people around them. Those kind of leaders are often seen as threats, often targeted by the powers that be and taken out. It's true for other people in the Bible. John the Baptist, in Jesus, one of Jesus' contemporaries, he was killed. The Apostle Paul, later on, after Jesus, would be killed. Throughout Christian history, people have been killed for their faith. Think of other uh, religious leaders like Joseph Smith, or Martin Luther King, or Mahatma Gandhi, even Jim Jones. These are people who die in the line of duty as religious leaders. That part is not unique for Jesus. What sets Christianity apart, though? What makes Jesus different? And the main thing we want you to come away with today, understanding more than you understand it now, is Christianity's belief that death was not the end for Jesus. That Jesus didn't die because the powers that be got the upper hand, because they caught him in a moment of weakness or vulnerability, and there was nothing he could do about it. What we believe is that Jesus died because that's exactly why he came here. He came to die. But more than that, he came to be undead. He came to die and then to rise again. That's the message of Easter. That's the message we want to unpack this morning. Easter and and the message of resurrection is tied up with the fact that Jesus is not just a good teacher who helps us understand ourselves better who helps us understand the world and how to get along in it. He isn't just a prophet who brings God's word to us and helps us understand more what God is like. He is both of those things, but he's not just those things. Jesus, fundamentally, is a sacrifice that makes us clean and a powerful king who gives us life. Now, that's what John's gospel is about, the whole thing. The word life occurs like 36 times in this gospel. It's all over the place. We've already read the story of Jesus coming back to life earlier in our service this morning. We read John's account of the fact that Jesus, though he was dead, came back to life in, in real bodies, in, in a real body that's just as real as the one that I have or the one that you have. What I want to do for this morning, for, for, for this section of our time, is not d- dig into the story, but go to one of the sections in John's gospel where Jesus talks about the fact that he's going to come back to life. 
And how does he understand its importance? By trying to unpack a, a section of Jesus' teaching where he puts this picture before us, a promise that, that he could deliver us in a way no one else could because he was going to come back to life again. I think that's going to help us to understand and appreciate more the story that we read earlier this morning, the fact of his resurrection. We want to dig into the meaning of it together this morning. What we have in John chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning, what we have in John chapter 10 is is a description of Jesus that's meant to give us hope and to encourage us to trust in him. It's a case for why you can trust Jesus to give you life even though you can't trust anything else in this world. That's the case. I'm going to break it down into two sections. What Jesus offers us, that's going to be the first verse that we read. And then the majority of our time, the majority of the passage we're going to read is about why you can trust him to deliver on what he's offered to us. This passage is about the good shepherd. It's really familiar. Chances are you've heard it before. It's a passage about the good shepherd, and and mostly it talks about the death of the good shepherd. But at the end, and what we want to really see the whole passage in light of is a promise that he dies not just to save us, but to rise again. Now, I want to read the passage first, so if you have that, if you found it, uh, John chapter 10... I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. I'm going to read verses 10 to 18 from John chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first verse that we read together, uh, verse 10, chapter 10, is a verse about what Jesus offers us. That's where we want to start this morning. It sets the stage, helps us understand why what comes next matters so much. If you've got a worship guide, you can follow along these two points. There's a little summary of what each point means in case you get lost. Verse 10 is the key. Let me read it again for us. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. There's the context. It's a threat. That's one way your life can go. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. Verse 10 is what you might call a summary of Jesus' life. Of his purpose. The reason that he came. And there's lots of different reasons that he came. But this is the main one. He came 
so that he could give us life. He came to give abundant life. Now, he doesn't elaborate here. In this verse, he doesn't tell you what abundant life means. But remember what I said. John's gospel is all about life. We got plenty of information scattered throughout the rest of the book that lets us know what Jesus means here when he says that, that Jesus came to give abundant life. And there's a couple of things. I'm going to mention two things that we can pull from the rest of John to understand what Jesus means when he says that Jesus came to give abundant life. Two things that he means by this. Here's the first one. It's a quality of life, an abundant quality of life here, now, in this world. It's a life that's marked by joy, by rest, by satisfaction. It's a kind of life that he's already captured for us in a couple of really powerful images. One we've already looked at together as a congregation, one that's coming up for us pretty soon. One of them we've already looked at is the image of living water. Jesus describes to this woman who was who was talking to him, a woman who had been rejected by everyone that she knew, a woman who had been looking for satisfaction in marriage after marriage, relationship after relationship, and hadn't been able to find it. Jesus says to her, here, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. And if you were to drink from this living water, you would never be thirsty again. Similar passage a couple chapters later, John chapter 6. There, people come to him because they're hungry. They've seen that he has this amazing power to give food. It's a story about Jesus making uh, food for 5,000 people out of just a couple pieces of bread and some fish. They come to him for more. They want more where that came from. And Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life. You eat me, you feast on me, you will never be hungry again. In both cases, folks who were talking to Jesus were looking for were, were, was physical satisfaction, you know, actual quenching of thirst and hunger. What Jesus was talking about, though, was something higher than that. Not physical thirst or hunger, that, it, but, but, but abundant life in which, in which you know what it is to be at peace. And don't miss this. What Jesus means when he says that, that he's come to give abundant life is not really tied to physical circumstances. It isn't a promise that Jesus can give you everything you've ever wanted out of life. That in him, if you trust him, all your wildest dreams will come true. That's not what he promises. In both of those cases I mentioned before where he's talking about living water or the bread of life, that's what people were looking for. They want Jesus and his power to make their dreams come true. In both cases, Jesus points him to something deeper. A sort of hunger beneath the hunger. And says to them, no, what you've got to address is the fact that you aren't satisfied ever. That the things you've looked to to give you meaning and purpose in this life have let you down. But if you come to me, well, I'll quench that thirst forever. The abundant life Jesus wants to give is a certain quality of life. It's marked by a peace facing a future that you can't control or predict. Jesus doesn't promise you're going to know exactly what's going to happen in your life. He doesn't promise that. He doesn't promise even the things you don't like will happen to you. What he promises is that you can have peace even though you can't control or predict the future because you can trust him to take care of you. It's marked by a present, a contentment and happiness in the present that can withstand the things in this life that each one of us experiences right now that we wish weren't true. When he promises abundant life, he's promising a quality of life in which you can know happiness and contentment now despite the things in your life that you wish weren't true. That's the quality of life. 
That's what Jesus wants to give. That's why he came. But the abundant life that he's talking about here has another dimension. Okay, Quality of life, one marked by rest, joy, peace, satisfaction, contentment in him. But also sort of a quantity of life. I guess, can you, can you use quantity when it's infinite? What he promised is that he was going to give eternal life. In each of, the, in each of those references I made before, the one to the living water, the one to the, li- to the bread of life, both of those, Jesus says, not just will you experience satisfaction now, but I will, he tells, he tells the woman, I will create in you a well of water that is welling up to eternal life. In John chapter 6, where he's talking about the bread of life, he says, you eat on me and you will know eternal life. Of course, maybe the most famous passage in John is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him will not perish. You're not going to die, but will have eternal life. When Jesus says he came to give life and to give it abundantly, he meant he came to give you a life no one else can give you right now, and he came to free you from the power of death, a power that no one else has been able to shake. Another feature of this verse is its realism. It starts with the thief. It starts with the fact that the deck is stacked against each one of us. That if Jesus is going to deliver us, he has a battle to fight. That there are things in this world and things in us that work against us knowing the kind of peace that he came to offer us. All of us are wanting abundant life. All of us know from experience that it is threatened on every hand by stuff that's in us, by stuff that's outside us that we can't control. We're all looking for an abundant life that the thieves, or to use the, the image from later in the verse, the, the wolves can't overcome. And we're bombarded by offers of that abundant life everywhere we look. Maybe more in America in the 21st century than any other time in human history. We are bombarded with advertisements that promise us the abundant life. You walk into the mall and these huge floor-to-ceiling posters with smiling and happy people offering you a picture of the life that you want and all you need to do is read the fine print to find out what it is that you've got to buy to get what they have. Maybe it's jewelry or clothes or some sort of, I don't know, skin cream. But it promises you happiness. It's what we look to relationships to give us, that's for sure. Many of us have imagined finishing our training and finding it at the end of the rainbow when we actually get to do what we've been training for in graduate school or residency. All of us are looking for it. There's no question. Everybody wants it. The question is, where are you looking for it? And how can you know that where you look for abundant life can deliver. How do you know that what you're looking to can protect what you love from death and all of its effects? That's the question. It's a question that Jesus has to answer of himself. This is, this is where I especially want to make this clear for those of you who are seeking Jesus this morning, who maybe haven't committed to him yet. It's important to evaluate him. And here's the question you use to evaluate him. How do I know what's true about Jesus? How can I know that Jesus can give me the life that he said he came to give me? The life that I've always wanted, 
the life that lots of other things are promising me, how do I know that Jesus can actually deliver? And most of the passage we're looking at this morning is, is put here, preserved for us for 2,000 years to answer that question for you. What Jesus offers is abundant life, but how can we trust him to, to provide it? That's what verses 11 through 18 are meant to, to demonstrate for us. Why you can trust Jesus. And, and the message of Easter is the key, all right? The image here is the good shepherd. And most of the time we associate that image, if you're familiar with it, with the death of Jesus, the death of the shepherd who lays down his life for sheep. We're going we're to unpack that together. But, but we're building here towards the end where he says, I came to lay down my life so that I could take my life up again. That's what we want to leave understanding. That's where we're headed. You can trust him because Jesus cares for his people not just with a love that drove him to death, but with a power that death could not conquer. That's Easter. That's why you can trust Jesus. And that's what we want to unpack together through the rest of this passage. These verses are meant to convince us that we can trust him to give us abundant and eternal life. And I want to point out from, this, from these verses three reasons that we can trust Jesus, okay? Three reasons based on this good shepherd analogy, that we can trust Jesus to provide the life he said he came to give us. Here's the first one. You can trust Jesus to provide an abundant life for you, the one he said he came to give you, because Jesus loves his people enough to die for them. This is Good Friday, okay? We need to start there. You can trust him because he loves his people so much. He loves you if you commit your life to him so much that he died for you. That's what Jesus says in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says it there, and he says it three other times in this short passage. I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. Proving this kind of love is what sets Jesus apart. That's the main point of this illustration of the, of, of the good shepherd and the contrast between the good shepherd on one hand and the hired hand over here on the other hand. And the, the image kind of stands for itself. I don't think I need to explain it much. You've seen it in verses 12 and following. The good shepherd is good because he's not like the hired hand. Now, the hired hand on the one hand only, only is in it for the money, right? He wants to take home a paycheck, put some food on his table maybe a roof over his head. But he doesn't know the sheep. There's no loss to him personally if one of the sheep gets killed. They aren't his sheep. And honestly, if he sees a wolf coming, he's not even going to stick around. He's just going to flee. The wolf's going to come and scatter them, kill them, do what the wolf will with them. Because he's just there for the money, and to threaten his life is to threaten his ability to use the money. What's the point of the money if there's no life to enjoy it with? He's fine to do the job that he signed up to do, in other words. I'll stand here with my little staff with the hook on the end, maybe sleep on a blanket under the stars with the sheep all around me. I'll make sure they get fed. But once, well, once the equation shifts, once he might actually have to fight, once he might actually get injured, he's out of there. That's not what he signed up for. See, the owner has only bought so much of him. And when that is filled up, he's done. I basically was this guy for a while in college. I once had a rent-a-cop job. You guys know what the rent-a-cops are? They're people who wear uniforms that look like police officers but are 
pretty much all 18-year-olds with no experience and no training. Um, it was actually a pretty decent job. You know, I got to do all my homework while I sat there and got paid for it. My only regret about the job is that it was in the years before the Segway. I think I would have enjoyed one of those. Do you know what I'm talking about? The, the two-wheeled things that sort of self-balance. I never got to, to taste the thrill of riding one of those around a mall. But I did have the uncomfortable Navy uniform, the thick, rough, I guess it was polyester, really uncomfortable. Didn't fit very well. These cheap brass-looking buttons, but they were actually plastic. And then this really heavy badge, I mean like a heavy metal badge that I had to pin on the shirt and didn't fit very well. I was always pulling it down, sagging. It was really uncomfortable. I was constantly having to do that. But otherwise, it was, it was a pretty good job. I just plant myself at this desk, usually the after hours for some office building. Uh, in this one case, I had a, it was an office building for one of these uh, internet bubble companies back in like the early 2000s, emazing.com. It was like a mini Google because they, uh, they had these snack machines and drink machines where it was all free. You just hit the button and Dr. Pepper comes out and it's yours. So after hours, you know, I'm, clean, I'm a college kid. I'm just clean enough on that. I think the company didn't make it past the bubble and I may have contributed to that with the <laughs> amount of snacks I was consuming. The, the, one of the only things I was trained on at this job, one of the only things they told us was what to do if something actually happened. Something other than, you know, handing a name tag to somebody or checking them in off of a list. And here's what you're told to do. If, if anything happens or anybody suspicious shows up, you run. <laughs> and then you call the cops in that order. You run first, then you call the cops. Because ultimately, you know, we were all there for the cash. And it wasn't very much. I was there for the $7 an hour. And that bought... That was enough to buy my body in a desk chair, maybe a spin around the office floor once an hour, but no more. Certainly not more. But if somebody broke into my home, if they threatened my wife and my two boys, well, I don't have much to offer here, but I'm going to fight to the last breath to protect what I would rather not live than live without. And Jesus is a shepherd, something like that, but even greater. Jesus knows his sheep. They are his life in some senses. He has identified himself by his ability to care for them. He knows them, and he will not run when evil comes for them. He owns the sheep, cares for the sheep, and lays down his life for them. One commentator that I read this week was great in setting up what a good Palestinian shepherd was. A good Palestinian shepherd in this era was a far cry from the sort of uh, you know chubby, cuddly, haloed shepherd boys of our Christmas imaginations or the precious moments figurines that, that you may be familiar with. That's not what they look like. They were rough and tumble armed guards. That said, this is a quote from Leon Morris, when the Palestinian shepherd did die in defense of his sheep, that was an accident. He didn't go into that shift hoping to die. When the Palestinian shepherd, even a good one, fought to the death of the sheep, it was an accident. He planned to live for them, not to die for them. 
And here is where Jesus is a shepherd that's unlike anything else in human experience. What this passage says, repeats four times to make sure you get the point, is that Jesus came to shepherd us precisely in order to die. You know, even the best of Palestinian shepherds would be willing to fight to the death, but chances are if they knew ahead of time that a wolf was coming, they wouldn't be able to handle it, chances are they probably wouldn't have gone to work that day, right? If they'd known. If they'd known. But not only did Jesus know what was going to be called for from him, he came precisely in order to die for his sheep. That's the extent of his love. His was a premeditated death that would have been more than the best of shepherds would have been willing to offer. So why can you trust this Jesus to give you the abundant life he tells us here he came to give you? You can trust him to do it because he loves you if you give yourself to him in a way that no one else ever could. He loves you with his being. He has come to lay his life on the line, even more to lay his life down for you. That's how much he loves you. That's how committed he is to delivering what's best and to protecting those that he loves. That's the first reason you can trust Jesus. But we haven't said enough so far. We haven't said enough so far. Because you know what it means for a flock of sheep when their shepherd dies. When the pack of wolves takes out the shepherd first, well, they might appreciate it. Thanks for laying down your life. But you know what's going to happen to them next. They're going to be destroyed because they're helpless. Maybe to change the imagery. It's an amazing, powerful story. Every time we hear of of a soldier in combat who gives up his life for his troop, for his for his fellow troops. You know, like say they're in a in a foxhole or something, and a grenade gets tossed in. You hear stories about this, and man just covers it up so that his friends are saved. But you know what? He gives up his life. It's amazing, it's incredible. But his buddies are still stuck in the foxholes and grenades are still coming in after them. If all Jesus did was come to die for us, if all he did was die as a kind of martyr, then we're still where we were before. Our abundant life is still in very much in question. But Jesus' death, here's, here's the next point. Jesus' death was only a means to an end. Here's the second reason we can trust him. He died for his people so that he could rise again. He died for his people as a step towards his rising again. Friends, verses 17 and 18 here, everything about Jesus' ministry to us, all the beauty in the images of what Jesus has come to offer us here and throughout the rest of the Bible, all of it, all of Christianity hinges on the details of verses 17 to 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. We've seen that already. He lays down his life for the sheep. But here in verse 17, here's another purpose. Here's a higher purpose. Here's the main thing that he did when he laid down his life. Why did I lay down my life? So that I may take it up again. You get that? The purpose for his dying was his rising. He had to die before he could rise again. Now, I know this is a little bit abstract. We've got some work to do to, to, to understand why. We've said, we've said one thing that's clear. Jesus came to die. His whole ministry was aimed at dying. But why? 
Verse 17 says he died so he could take up his life again. That he dies with absolute control. Verse 18 makes it clear. It says it again, in case you haven't gotten the point yet. Nobody takes the life from me. It wasn't that they just got the drop on me. I came here to lay down my life. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. So what's all this about? What is the end in question? What he means is explained in other places. It isn't elaborated on here. We have to pull from the bigger picture of the New Testament to understand why he dies so that he can rise again. Why not just stay alive? What the rest of the New Testament, really the rest of the whole Bible story tells us in brief, is that death is not natural. It's not just the way of the world. Death is an imposter on a beautiful and good creation. It is an assault on the pinnacle of that good creation, on human beings in all of their dignity created in the image of God. Death is an imposter that comes at the chief prize that God created. But it is a, an imposter that we set loose in the world. Death has its power, the Bible tells us, because we've sinned. Because every sin, every rejection of God's way, every time we act against the conscience he's put in us to tell us what's right and what's wrong, we are rejecting him. And he's the source of all life. He is the reason that we are. To reject him is to choose death to him. And as long as Jesus stayed dead, the penalty of death that he came to wipe out still had force. Think of it like this. As long as a convicted criminal is still in prison, they're still not right in the eyes of the law. They've still got some penalty left to pay, right? You know that they're made right. You know that their debt has been paid. You know that what they owed for drug trafficking or whatever has been wiped clean when the prison doors open and they get to come out. As long as Jesus is still in the grave, then his death for sinners as a sacrifice to wipe them clean of what they'd done against God was still not enough. We would still be left to wonder, is there some sin that's not paid for yet? Is that why he's still dead? Our death is still hanging over our heads as long as Jesus isn't alive. But Jesus came to die so that he could completely wipe out sin and then rise again. His rising is the sign that his death did its work, that there's nothing left for it to do, that you can trust him to make you clean because he has done all that's necessary. And he has, he has risen again so that alive he can take care of each one of you. Jesus' death in that sense and his resurrection especially is not an isolated event. It's a sign of something still to come. It, it, maybe, maybe one image helps me, maybe it'll help you. The image of daffodils that seem to always, I mean, I'm not a botanist. I don't know this for a fact, but it seems to me that the daffodils are always the first flowers to shoot up. And they just shoot up all over in the middle of people's yards. And you know that even though it's still probably going to be cold after those daffodils come up, you know that it's a sign of what's to come. That the daffodils aren't the end. That there's going to be tulips popping up later. That lilies are coming. That the red buds will start to bloom and the Bradford pears in the dogwoods that a new day is dawning. Jesus' death and resurrection, primarily his resurrection, in this sense is sort of like those daffodils. But it's even greater than that, friends. Because it's not, the, the daffodils popping up on a cold early spring morning has no cause 
of the rest of the world, of the rest of, of the flowers coming out. It's just sort of a random fact that it happens to come first. What we're told about Jesus is that the fact that he lives now, that's a cause and a promise that each one of us who trust in him will live again too. That our death will no, longer, will no more be final for us than Jesus' death was for him. That a new world has been set in motion. That it is coming because Jesus lives again. And that's what he came for. If he was going to give us abundant life, he had to come in order that he could rise again. He couldn't just come and be. He couldn't just do amazing miracles. He had to die first and handle sin. But he, ha- he couldn't stay dead. That wouldn't have been enough. He had to die and he had to rise again. That's what he means. And that's why we can trust him. We can trust him because he came to rise again. And here's the last one. This is where we'll close. We trust in him. We trust in him to give us the abundant life he's promised us. Because the one who loved us so much, this one's going to be longer if you're taking notes, sorry. Because the one who loved us enough to die for us, and the one who was powerful enough to conquer the grave, is the one who lives right now in order to provide for all those who trust in him. Why can you trust Jesus to give you abundant life? Because he's not dead. He is not dead. He lives, and he lives to take care of you. It's it's these two great truths coming together that give us the living, life-breathing hope of Easter right here, right now, for whatever it is that you're facing today. His love was so great, he died for you. His power was so great, death couldn't hold him, though it's held in its grip every other person who's ever lived. Those two things come together with a promise that this one can handle anything that's thrown at you. And not only is he able to handle it, he lives to handle it. That's what he wants. That's what he came for, to give you abundant life that thieves, robbers, wolves, whatever, can't destroy. He lives to provide for his sheep. Just think on a couple of the images we already have. I want you, I want you to see the sweet images that are given of Jesus' care for his sheep in light of this promise that he loves us enough to die, he's powerful enough to, to, to rise again, Now now see all the promises he's made to you in that light. This is the one who promises you. This is the one who promises you life. This is the one who promises you that that your sins can be forgiven, even yours, even yours. You think that you're different? You think that you have sinned against God in a way that others haven't? That you are past being made clean? You're wrong, friends. Nothing is past this God who came to us, who died for us, who rose for us, and who offers to make us clean. This is the one who knows his sheep inside and out. You are not a name for him. You're not just a name. You are not just a means to some other end. You are the precious treasure that he lives to protect. One of my favorite verses about Jesus' ministry to us is from Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 25, it's a verse that talks about him being a a priest for us, one who stands for us, a mediator for us, who lives again. Hebrews 7.25 says, He lives to intercede. 
for you. He is the one who has promised later on in this chapter, in chapter 10, that he knows his sheep, his sheep know him. He gives them eternal life and they will never perish. And here it is, friends. This God who's come to you, who loved you enough to die, who's powerful enough to keep you, to to rise again from the grave, he promises you that no one can snatch you out of his hand. When this shepherd makes this promise, he can deliver. He's the one who stands before you now, who holds on to you even in the midst of darkness and loss, even in the face of death. Even in darkness, he loves you enough to die for you. You feel unloved by him? Look to this passage and see. He loved you enough to die for you. But see the other side of the coin. He's powerful enough to conquer even death. So what you're going through, whatever it is, however clearly it seems to undermine the notion that God cares anything for you at all, hear this promise and believe that your shepherd can care for you, that he will care for you, that he lives again precisely in order to care for you. And what you see now is not all that is. It's not that his hands are tied and he can't just do any better. This is the God who triumphed over the grave. There is nothing he can't do. Now his ways are past finding out. I don't know why he allows you to go through what he does. But you can know that he loves you and that he's powerful enough to conquer death and that therefore there is nothing that can separate you from him. I think of uh, chapter 11, chapter right after the one we've looked at together. It's a chapter where one of Jesus' friends dies. His name is Lazarus. When Jesus confronts the family of Lazarus, they were other friends of his, they ask him the obvious question, where were you? Why weren't you here? You could have stopped this. We're tempted to ask a version of that question every day, aren't we? If you were here, I wouldn't be experiencing this. What he tells his friends is that I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, well, you still might die. You will. Though you die, yet you will live. The moment you may, you may be facing a literal death or you may be facing one of the thousands of little deaths that we face in life on the way to the big one. Death of our dreams, of our hopes. Right? You may be facing a kind of death and he doesn't promise you you won't experience it. But what he promises you, what this good shepherd who loves you enough to die and is powerful enough to rise again promises you is that though you may die, yet you will live. Do you believe this? Friends, who is your shepherd? It's not a question of if you'll look to someone or something for abundant life, but who and where you'll look to someone or something for abundant life. How's it working out so far? Can it keep you from death? 
Death is where we're headed, each one of us, and we deserve it. But Jesus promises life, and he can deliver. Trust in him. Trust in him today. Father, all of us, all of us, each one of us needs to trust more than we do. Thank you for coming to us in Jesus so that we can see what your love looks like played out in the pages of history so that we get real, living, breathing examples of how you care for us. Thank you for the good shepherd who knows and loves his sheep, who lays down his life for them so that he can take it up again and help us now. Confronted with this picture, help us to be convinced by it. Convinced that we can give ourselves to him that we can set aside our consumer mode where we're always and only evaluating and we can give ourselves to Him. Help us to trust Him. Win us over to Him by Your Spirit this morning. Help us to live now with an abundance that's possible because we know we will live forever through Him. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. strong perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives in peace for me my name is